Welcome to the latest edition of Lifeline Theaters On The Air. I'm Alicia Duncan, Artistic Director. From Chicago's Rogers Park neighborhood, we entreat you to open your heart to Sample of Solo, a selection of original fan favorite stories from our Filet of Solo Festival. This is the first of four podcasts. This week, we regale you with tales of things I learned in school. Our first story is The Sword of Damocles, written and performed by Allison Kane. It is November of 1984, and I am sitting cross-legged in a circle with a bunch of young acting students at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This is early in our sophomore year, and we're all a little relieved, but not out of the woods yet. CMU is a conservatory program, which means you have to audition to get in. And at the time, for the first two years, you were subject to be cut if your progress was not deemed worthy in the program that was then considered number one in the country. 5,000 auditioned, 50 were accepted, and at the beginning of our sophomore year, we were down to 30, with three cuts coming in December and two more by the end of the school year. In other words, you tried to learn your artistic craft with the Sword of Damocles hanging over your head. We were doing a series of exploratory exercises that fall. One involved researching what candy bars were made in Pittsburgh and then physically acting out their manufacture. My group had the Clark Bar. I was the pre-nougat. I acted out a peanut being cleaved in two, cut up into little pieces, and made into a paste. I got an A. Our current exercise was to talk about a traumatic experience in our life. Each class period, four or five young actors would pour their hearts out to the group to talk about stories of abuse, betrayal, and coming out. What was the purpose of this? To get in touch with ourselves? I just remember a lot of tears. I was later told that everyone was dreading my story. I had a wonderful, loving, and healthy childhood, marred by death. My father, Cliff, was killed while working as a tow truck driver when I was two and a half. One late December evening, his last call of the night, he was hitching up a car to his truck. A drunk driver, thinking it was a moving car, rear-ended it, crushing my father and killing him almost instantly. The driver also killed his wife and sister-in-law, who were in the car with him. He was the only survivor. I would have hated to have been that man. My mother told me that my father and I were very close, so much so at times that she would feel left out and a little jealous, but I have no memory of him. My mother met my stepfather, Roy, when I was four, and they got married when I was 10, and I adored him. This time, it was not a drunk that changed our lives, but the frailty of the human body. Roy died 
of a major coronary on both sides of his heart while jogging at the age of 36. Death was once again instant. He left my mother, Michael, my baby half-brother who was one and a half years old, and Roy's two sons by a previous marriage, Stephen and Tommy. I was almost 13. Stephen was a year older and Tommy was six months younger. I thought that God, knowing that I didn't remember my father, wanted to make sure I knew what death felt like. It was awful. But when our teacher first presented the acting exercise, the death of my father's was not what popped up in my mind. What jumped out at me was an experience I had during my junior year of high school, and I decided to share this with the class. My carpool had dropped me off in front of my house after school. As I was walking up the stairs, my mother opened the door in tears, telling me to be quiet because she didn't want my little brother to get upset. Given our bad luck of people dying on us, my first thought was that something happened to Grandpa. He had lived with us since I was nine, and while at that point he had received his last rites four times, the tough old codger kept coming back with gusto. He was currently doing very well, but I had learned that death does not follow the rules. I asked if it was him. She shook her head no, but was so racked by tears she couldn't speak. I asked her to calm down and let me know what had happened. She blurted out, I killed Juliet! Juliet was my all-white Persian Angora mixed cat who I got when I was four. She'd had 12 litters of kittens, moved with us four times, and was a huge part of my family. What happened? I thought it was the tennis shoes. What? Slowly, the story unfolded. My mother had been cleaning the house and was running back and forth between chores when she realized she had a load of clothes in the dryer that were not quite done. So she ran into the laundry room, slammed the dryer door shut, turned it on, and quickly ran out of the room to continue whatever tasks she had left. A little while later, she came into the kitchen, which was adjacent to the laundry room, to do something, and she heard a thumping coming from the laundry room. She thought it was Michael's tennis shoes, but she couldn't remember throwing them in. She went into the laundry room, and there on the floor were Michael's shoes, not in the dryer. She walked to the thumping dryer and slowly opened the door. And there she saw the lifeless body of Juliet. It was at this point in the telling of my story that I started to feel the tone in the room shift, but I was too caught up in the sadness of the memory. I told them how my mother asked Grandpa to come upstairs so he could take Juliet out of the dryer and how he chuckled the entire time. Grandpa was kind of an asshole. I told them how for weeks after, my little brother Michael, who was four at the time, would look up at her and say, I miss Juliet. Aren't you sad that you killed her? I told them about the party I had soon after where instead of providing solace, my friends asked me questions like, did she have static cling? And did you change her name to Fluffy? That is when I heard the sounds in the room. And I noticed that almost everyone in the class had their hands over their mouths 
in an attempt to stop the laughter. I looked at them and said with all sincerity, this was my traumatic day. And the entire room erupted. Gales of laughter, howls and howls of laughter, tears running down their cheeks from laughing so hard. They loved me, they explained. They had just expected a different story. To this day, I have no idea why I chose to tell that story. Maybe I was sick of my stories of the deaths of my fathers, about growing up the widow's daughter, about the look of pity that always crossed people's faces when they found out about why I had no dad, and, and hearing every single person say, oh, your poor mother. Maybe I just wanted to share an experience that didn't involve dead people, so I chose a dead cat. Or maybe I thought this exercise was fucking stupid and manipulative, and I resented an acting teacher making a bunch of kids who were terrified of being cut share their deepest secrets and emotions. It was years later that someone presented the theory that Juliet had crawled into the dryer and died long before mom had closed the door, that the extreme rigor mortis that we found her in was perhaps not possible in so short a time. But no one had suggested that theory at this time. And my story provided some respite that November day in 1984 for a bunch of young acting students living under the sword. And for one moment, my mother Colette was not known as the poor, unfortunate double widow, but the unwitting killer of a cat renamed Fluffy. Next up is Spunky, written and performed by Georgia Knapp. In the state of Georgia, a public school health class includes your standard subjects. Lectures on drugs and alcohol, videos about eating disorders, reminders on how germs spread, and, because this is the Bible Belt after all, abstinence education. In my hometown of Glen County, abstinence classes start around the sixth grade and continue every year throughout high school. And these classes are always preached by one man, Patrick Eads. Patrick Eads is an abstinence legend in the state of Georgia. Until recently, I'm pretty sure more people knew his name than the name of the governor. When he is not preaching abstinence to young adults, Patrick Eads works at the Safeway House, a Christian center for teens who feel they cannot go home. Year after year, Eads' week-long abstinence lessons would begin the exact same way. I am having the best sex of my life, he would shout. I am having the best, most amazing sex ever. And do you know why? As we got older, we stopped responding to this question. I am having the best, most amazing sex ever because I waited until I was married to have sex. I am having the best, most amazing sex with my wife because I waited for her. Eats would then use different metaphors of how you would be used and dirty if you didn't save yourself for marriage. His favorite was a bucket of fried chicken versus a white paper napkin. Eads would don a blonde wig and pretend to flirt with all the boys in the room. He would go to their desk, lounge across their small tabletop, sit in their laps, and giggle like a cartoon character. 
With each new boy, Eads would pull a piece of chicken out of the bucket. He would pretend to eat it, toss it back into the bucket, and then he would wipe his hands with the napkin. He would typically do this with about four to five boys before presenting the now grimy and nearly translucent napkin to the class. Do you want to touch this? He would ask. We would shake our heads no. Then neither will the man or woman you want to marry. Eads would then bring out the big gun, Spunky the Sperm. Spunky was a basketball wrapped in a white sheet. The sheet was tied snugly around Spunky's round, bouncy head, which had a giant happy face drawn on it, and the rest of the sheet was fashioned into his long white tail. Eads used this tail to throw Spunky around the room. He'd bounce him from desk to desk and toss him at unsuspecting students. The message? Spunky is tricky and Spunky cannot be controlled. Condoms did not stop Spunky, that was for sure. Condoms might keep Spunky at bay, but all it takes is one little Spunky and one little latex hole, and bam, you are used goods, a high school dropout, and a future welfare recipient. Your parents were not going to help you. Eads made that very clear. You would never get married, your friends would disown you, and you could completely forget about the father of baby Spunky. The Safeway house would take you in, though. He never explained what would happen after you had the baby. But while you were pregnant, Patrick Eads's Safeway house would be there for you when the rest of the world had kicked you out. When you think about it, this is pretty scary stuff for a teenager. Have sex and risk your entire world disappearing? I don't even want to go into the graphic detail they used for STDs, but let's just say they sounded akin to leprosy. They had scared all the girls into abstinence with Spunky the Sperm and the boys with horror stories of Civil War era gonorrhea treatment. Now, I lived and grew up in the South, but I am not from the South. To truly be Southern, you must be at least the second generation to have been born and raised in the South. My parents are from Jersey and Chicago. Bible Belt morals were shoved down my throat at school, but at home, my mother advised me to test drive the car before you buy it. It wasn't until I went to college in Michigan that I learned abstinence classes are not a common U.S. subject. My friends talked about putting condoms onto bananas in their high school health classes. I told them about Spunky, and their jaws dropped. Abstinence is so ingrained in Southern society, I just assumed this was standard American core curriculum. I didn't even realize there were multiple forms of STD prevention, other than abstinence, until I read a Cosmopolitan article. But did these scare tactics work, though? Spunky the sperm, greasy chicken napkins, ancient gonorrhea treatments... It's pretty obvious that these classes were not meant to educate students, but to terrify us into never even rounding second base until you had met your husband or wife at the altar and signed a housing lease together. Some of my friends took this abstinence advice to the extreme. One guy planned on not having his first kiss until a minister said, you may now kiss the bride. Another broke up with his girlfriend and told me she was too progressive. You mean she wants to vote? I asked. She wanted to make out, he said. I don't do that before marriage. Then there were my girlfriends who at the end of senior year found themselves with a baby in their arms or one soon on the way. 
In my graduating class of 367 students, nearly a quarter had kids out of wedlock, both the boys and the girls. Obviously, these students were either out sick every abstinence week or Spunky didn't have the effect Eads was going for. Maybe it was the big happy face drawn on his head. One of my best friends from high school was a guy named Ross. Unlike me, Ross was the very definition of Southern. He had the genteel Southern drawl that calls to mind mint juleps and sweating on a porch swing. He had a deer head mounted above his bed and a shotgun underneath. His family had lived in the South for countless generations, and he referred to the Civil War as just the war. If it hadn't been for his love of musicals, I'm not really sure how we ever would have become friends. One night, while Ross and I were both home from college and walking on the beach, the subject of abstinence came up. Ross told me he would never do anything below the neck with a girl until he was married. I was floored. But that's where all the fun is, I said. Not even just above the waist? Much to Ross's dismay, I continued to bring this subject up for the next two years. We would talk online from our respective universities, or I would call him up at some ungodly hour after having had a little too much fun at a cast party. Ross, I would say, have you made out with anyone yet? He would say no, but I would press the subject over and over, saying, I just don't want you to miss out on all this. I don't want you to end up a nun. Shortly after we graduated college, Ross blindsided me on yet another beach walk. He liked me. He'd liked me for some time and had been waiting for the right moment to say something. But since I was always asking him when he was going to find someone to hook up with and then telling him about everyone I was hooking up with, well, that opportune moment never quite came up. (laughs) But now the moment was perfect. Just two days ago, I had run over my cat, and I was devastated. The guy I was dating was not sympathetic, telling me it was the stupid cat's fault. And that response quickly ended our already dwindling affair. And then there was Ross, with his sweet little accent and his southern gentleman charm. So I said, why not? The next day, I remembered his below-the-neck rule. Well, shit. How was I supposed to test drive the car, which is a very important aspect when choosing a car, even a rental, when the car basically won't start? Luckily, the engine wasn't completely dead. It took a bit of coaxing and a jump start, and then it revved up just fine. Suck it, Spunky. Lastly, we have Bad Bart, written and performed by Lifeline Ensemble member Dorothy Milne. I was a teenager in the 1970s. Before cell phones, before selfies, before Instagram. Older folks had things to say about us. Kids get no fresh air, they just sit in front of the boob tube. Kids are in basements playing Dungeons and Dragons and can no longer distinguish between fantasy and reality. Other people in this family are expecting calls. Get off the phone. I was a teenager in the 1970s. 
It was the me decade, the me generation. Self-fulfillment was more important to young people than social responsibility. We were narcissistic. The world was doomed. My dad was an artist, mostly a painter, sometimes a sculptor, and always a do-it-yourself guy. He built furniture. He built birdhouses and tree houses and trellises and go-karts. He dug a fish pond in our backyard, and when I was in high school, he installed a fish pond in our living room. When I say pond, I don't mean aquarium. It was a pond, eight feet across, five feet wide, eight inches deep, welded metal. He put bricks and rocks in and around the pond to support ferns and tall, foliated plants draping artistically over the water. There were five goldfish in the pond. There was no bubbler because there was such an expanse of water, no mechanical oxygenation was required. We lived in a tiny ranch home, so the pond took up most of the living room. There was just a path between the pond and the couch. It was like sitting along one side of a campfire, only it was a pond. Did you know that goldfish grow to fit their environment? At the time of this story, they had expanded to over six inches long. One day, my dad was invited on a fishing trip with friends, and when he came home, he had a small bluegill in a plastic bag. He added him to the pond, and we named him Bart. We worried that Bart, who was three inches long, would be overwhelmed by the enormous goldfish. But Bart rounded up the goldfish and corralled them in one corner of the pond. Then he swanked around in his luxurious private pool. If a goldfish tried to come out of that crowded corner, he would be over there like a shot to push that goldfish back in line. We hoped things would settle down over the next few weeks, but they didn't. The goldfish outnumbered and outsized Bart, and I told them they should stand up for themselves. But they remained terrified and disorganized. My dad built an artful weaving wall of stones at the midpoint of the pond so the goldfish could enjoy one side and bad Bart, as we now called him, could enjoy the other. Everyone still had lots of room. But every morning when we got up, Bart was on the wrong side of the barrier, and the goldfish were huddled in their tiny corner. How was he getting through? Was there a small passage through the rock pile? It was several weeks before we saw it happen. He was flipping over the barricade. Who knew a bluegill could leap like a salmon? How did his fish brain even remember they were over there? How did he know which direction to go? Why was he determined to be a jackass? Dad built the barrier wider and higher, but no amount of additional rocks and plants foiled Bart. He was willing to flip atop the barricade and flop around up there till he could splash into the goldfish side of the pond. 
He was going to bully or die trying. I don't even think of fish as animals, but of course they are. Fish are fairly advanced. They have vertebrae, circulatory systems, a brain. Apparently, they have personalities. In my youth, most scientists didn't think that other mammals had personalities. Pet owners were just sentimentally ascribing human characteristics to their dumb pets. That was before Jane Goodall opened our eyes. That was before YouTube, where we've now all seen the cows listening to Mozart and the turtle playing with the ball and, and the dancing parrot. And did you see that dog that plays pool? He's so good. It's 2020, and scientists now recognize that animals have intelligence and personalities. It's 2020, and adults have new things to say about kids that sound kind of the same as what I remember hearing. Too much screen time. They'll never learn to interact. And it's a new generation me. But unlike the me generation of my youth, young folks today are also described as having a huge sense of social responsibility. Recently, I taught a drama and storytelling class at Sullivan High School in the Rogers Park neighborhood of Chicago. There's a lot of different fish in that pond. Kids born in Rogers Park and kids from all over the world because the neighborhood has a large immigrant population. It was a class of 20 students. Most kids did not know each other prior to the first day, and we were working on personal storytelling, which can be emotionally unexpected. On the first reading aloud to each other day, a girl choked sharing her story, and she hovered there on a half sob, gulping a little in a silent room. And this kid in the back, tough kid, hasn't shared or spoken or even been there most of our early days, says, you got this. And she did. She fought through and carried on. On a later day, a student came out to us in her reading expressing her sadness over her mother's ongoing rejection since she declared her sexuality a couple years before. The straight girls on either side reached over to hold her hand. And the boy who was supposed to read next said, I can't go now. I'm too upset about how her mother is behaving. There was plenty of funny writing in that class too, but it was the empathy that astounded me. We had one student with special needs in the class. Chubby, glasses, one of two white kids in the class, always had to leave early to take the special bus. And when she was called to leave, I was often leading an activity and, and didn't even notice. But whatever we were doing, the alpha female of the class noticed and would call out her name and say goodbye. And then we all chorused after her. Yeah, I'm learning about inclusion from the kids. No one in my high school in 1975 would have befriended or acknowledged that chubby special ed girl. That would have been social suicide. But here, at least once a week, 
I see the big alpha male of the class choose a seat beside her. He throws his arm across the back of her chair and asks about the details of her day. I, I cannot even grasp what I am looking at. It is a revelation to me. This is what an alpha can do, can be. When I have a dark day, when I feel powerless to do anything to affect positive change, when my efforts all feel futile, I'm still feeling a lot of faith in the generation coming up. And also, I have faith in the surprises of life. Surprises aren't always ugly. Sometimes they fall our way. After months of trying to get bad Bart to live cooperatively or to accept isolation, my family got up one morning to find Bart dead on the living room floor. He didn't go off the wrong end of the pond. He had still aimed the right direction. He had tried to leap across the center divide at the exterior edge where the wall was lower, seeking an easier path to the goldfish pond. But instead, he found the path to his final, inevitable destiny, taken down by his overweening ambition to bully. But... If the bad Barts of the world don't take themselves down, I have hope that the next generation just won't stand for their behavior. If we can just hold the world together long enough to pass it on. Tonight's episode was directed by ensemble member Dorothy Milne, Produced by Lifeline Theater and Sound Concept Media. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to hear about future projects. You can support our podcast at patreon.com slash lifeline theater.